So we've been talking about the book of Matthew, okay, and focusing on the Messiah. And we're quickly coming to the conclusion of it. But really, it is the climax, if you would, of, of the, the writing, the purpose for which Matthew actually wrote this entire account. The fact that a Jewish boy was born is exciting, but not necessarily is it worthy of a, a book. The fact that a Jewish boy was born who was of the lineage of David was exciting, but not necessarily was it worthy of a, a book. The fact that there was a Jewish boy who was born who had another cousin who was a, happened to be a Jewish boy who happened to eat locusts and wild honey and wear camel fur and hang out in the desert and, and tell people they were sinners was kind of cool. But not necessarily was it worthy of a, a book. Do you get what I'm saying? All, everything we've read so far is really good stuff. The fact that there was a Jewish boy who grew up who had faith that he could stop a storm in the middle of the lake. Now we're starting to what? Get a book. Get a book. <laughs> That's right. We're starting, to, we're starting to think about a book. And then you got a Jewish boy who grew up, and not only does he call, call him a storm, but he casts demons out. Now we've got a little bit more of a plot going on. And then that guy, he, he, he heals the, a boy, the widow of Nain's son. And then he heals a man who is dead for four days. And we really have the makings of a, a book. But still, not a book that is transformational for all of eternity. Does it make sense? There have been people who God has used to heal other people. I can tell you stories of people I know who God used in a way to do miraculous events. But books aren't going to be written about them. And we're not meeting together to celebrate them. Do you, you track where I'm going with that? The difference about this Jewish boy who grew up to do miraculous events by the power of God is that he was God himself. That Yahweh himself had done what he had declared that he would do. He was coming and he was dwelling in their midst. And as he declared through Isaiah in the 53rd chapter... He was about to, at this point, take their sins upon them. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin was about to become sin. In order that we might be able to become his righteousness. It's mind-boggling. And where we get to today, in this final segment, in the sacrifice of Messiah, with the trials, really is, is one of the passages, one of the areas that just, just kind of blow me away. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 2 in just a moment. It's always been a psalm that just kind of like, really? Really? Why do the, the heathen rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? 
You know that's what was written 3,500 years ago? And it hasn't changed? That what we're going to look at today, it's just, it could have happened today. If Jesus was on the earth today, do you think things would be any different? We've looked at the preparation of a sacrifice, the commemoration, that's the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated, the rejection by his own men, but today we're going to look at the trials. And there's going to be two trials, two primary trials that we're going to look at. We're not going to consider the, the time that he goes to Herod, which was recorded by, by Luke. But we're going to look at the, the trial before the religious leaders, and then we're going to look at the trial that was before the political leader. And we're going to see the irony of this whole situation, but also what I want you to, as a subset to look at as well is the example that Christ has left us. Because as we get closer and closer to the end times, we may be called upon, whether we like it or not, to mimic our Lord, to honestly, literally, as Peter says, to walk in his steps. We like to talk about walking in the steps with the power of the resurrection. But it's the fellowship of the sufferings that kind of gives us the willies. So we begin today with this trial before the council. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Because of the communion, we did that as our Bible reading. And so we're going to read this as we go through. But Last week, as we went through Matthew 26, we skipped a portion that I said we're going to come back to this week because it dealt with his trial. And so we're going to start in verse 57 here, go down to 68, and then we'll jump over to chapter 27. Beginning at verse 57. And those who laid hold of Jesus, this is in the garden after he was arrested, those who laid hold of Jesus led him the way to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. They already were what? They're waiting. They're, they're already together. They, they know what's going on, right? So they're waiting for him. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy! What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palm of their hand, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Turn to chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. So as we consider this 
first segment, the first thing I note is the perjury of the witnesses. They sought, this is exciting, we're going to talk about this again in a moment, but know what it says, that the, the chief priests and the scribes did what? They sought what? No, they didn't seek after testimony against him. What did they seek? Say again? No, 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 that's later. What does it say? Look at what it says. They sought what? They sought false witnesses. What does that tell you right off the bat? We got problems. How would you like it to be going to court in, in, the, uh, in the, um, the attack attorney, the... The prosecuting attorney, the attacker. Anyways, the prosecuting attorney, they haven't got anything on you, so they're going out and doing what? Making stuff up. Is that what they hire you to do? No, okay, good. Okay. They go, they go, they're gonna make they're gonna find something that isn't true, but they're gonna try to find two people to say it together. How sad. They went out looking for false testimony. Why? Because any of the true testimony would do what? Say it again? Free him. Well, not just free him. What would it do? It would make them look bad. Think about it. What? It would. Wait, wait. Say it again, David. Show him to be God. Any true testimony. Anybody who saw him raise the dead. Anybody who saw him um, calm the storm. Anybody who saw him cause a man who was born blind to become with sight. If they would have brought all the true testimony in, all it would have done was destroy their case and prove them to be God. So they had to bring in false testimony. But this is kind of fun to me whenever we do this kind of stuff and we go to the Old Testament because this is the stuff these guys knew. Right? They knew this. So Deuteronomy 19. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now get to the next part. This is, I love it. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who served in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he has thought to have done to his brother. How comes we don't read that there were like 15 crosses out there that day? What were, these t- what were these false witnesses seeking to do? Condemn him to crucifixion. We know that the, the Sanhedrin couldn't find a what? Credible witness, right? So what should have been the end result? Every one of those false witnesses, what? Should have been crucified. Make sense? Parents, this is a great verse to use in parenting. One of your children come to another children to get them in trouble, right? And they haven't sought to encourage them to do right. And maybe they're just, what, fleshing out the truth just a little bit there, you know? Because they want to see their brother or sister, what, be condemned to get in trouble, right? So according to the, to the word, what should happen? They should get what they wanted the other one to get, okay? I just want you to think about that. I'm just kind of float one through there, okay? So that, and actually, we should do that with our court systems, with all the lawsuits. You know, you put a lawsuit out there. If you win, that's one thing. If you lose, what happens? 
You pay them. Yeah? I'm suing you for a million dollars for defamation of character, buddy. But if I lose, guess what? I owe you a million dollars. That'd stop a whole lot of frivolous lawsuits, wouldn't it? I mean, this is kind of cool. You go out there and you bear false witness. What happens to you? Oh, nothing. Nothing. The, 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 the newspaper will be on your side. They'll, 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 push, they'll publish your case. But when, it's, when it doesn't happen that way, you don't ever read about it again. Oh, no. Let's put it out there. You want to sue Walmart for a, for a million dollars for spilling your hot coffee on your own lap? Oh, say what I say? What I say? What I say, Walmart. McDonald's, thank you. I'm glad you said that. McDonald's. I'm thinking McDonald's. I don't know why I said Walmart. Anyways, you'll get old one day. Anyways, and so, so yeah, so wouldn't it be kind of fun if you get, the person's got to turn around and pay Walmart, or why am I doing that? McDonald's, <laughs> a, a million dollars. I got Walmart. Maybe the shootings yesterday. I don't know. Anyways, Walmart on the brain. So, anyways, it's an amazing thing, okay? So, anyways, they went out and they sought false witnesses, kind of like Jezebel. Isn't this kind of interesting? So, I mean, could you imagine going up to the, the high priests, the chief priests and the scribes, and telling them, you guys are walking in the steps of Jezebel? Do you think that would go over very well? But exactly what happened? When Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth says, I wouldn't sell it, Ahab starts to cry, right? And Jezebel says, are you the king or not? I'll, I'll get that vineyard for you. And so she declared a feast to have everybody come. And then she told the elders of the, of the town to go out and find two false witnesses so that they would stand up. And then two witnesses got together. They declared that, that Naboth was a, a blasphemer. And so everybody took Naboth out, and then they stoned him. So it worked. She got two witnesses together. They were what, though? False witnesses. But it did work. But they weren't slick enough to even go out and get those false witnesses to agree. I mean, the best thing that they can come up with, sorry, not in here, but the best thing they could come up with is, in the passage we read was that Jesus said what? Destroy this temple, and after three days I will what? I'll rebuild it. What was he referring to? His body. They had to kind of try to drag something out, and that's still not even false witness. I mean, make sense? I mean, it's still, he did say it. But they're extracting it to a wrong thing. Finally, the, the high priest realizes he's getting nowhere except for digging a deeper pit. And he gets mad. He's angry. He's angry at Jesus. Why? What does it say? Why, why has his anger really come up? He doesn't respond to any of the false accusations. Wouldn't you love at this moment to have like a, a, a little camera? You know, like we have the web cameras and different things. You know, wouldn't you love to have a camera there that was recording Jesus? What did he look like? What did Jesus look like when, when all these... Was he rolling his eyes a little bit? I mean, I would be. I mean, I'd be kind of rolling my eyes. I'd be like, you know, more, you know like, you got to be kidding me. Words just kind of coming over my... my my mouth, I'm like, you guys have a clue what's even happening here. You know, I mean, I would love, is he just, or is he just standing here like with his head down? Is he just, you know, kind of like, I can't even bear to watch this. I mean, and, and the high priest is looking at him. And he's expecting that Jesus should at least what? 
defend himself, deny, get angry. I, I think, in my, this, is, this is my conjecture, I think he wants, the whole thing is to get Jesus angry. What happens when you get angry? Generally, sin. <laughs> That's why Paul says, be angry and sin not, right? So, I, I just think he's throwing things out there. He's fishing. Because if he could get Jesus to just sin, they win. What you're going to see over the next, not now 24 hours, but these 24 hours, in fact, actually 12 hours now in the life of Christ, is going to be that the spiritual war continues to become intensified. Behind it all, there's that spiritual war. We talked about it last week. There's a spiritual war going on. What does Satan realize? His time is short and he's in trouble. He's got to get Jesus to what? He's got to get him to sin. Do you realize the high priest, the chief, chief priests and the scribes, they're just pawns. Today, we have rulers and we have judges who are just pawns. We get frustrated, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The battle's not against the flesh. We get frustrated against the flesh. Jesus got it. He understood it. He knew where the war was at, and it wasn't these guys standing in front of him. Three times in, in what we taught last week, three times we saw Jesus say, all this is being done in order that scripture would be fulfilled. This isn't taking him by surprise. But the chief priest, the high priest, it's frustrating them. And so finally he says, I adjure you. I put you under the oath by the living God. Are you the Christ or not? Well, he hasn't denied it ever. And so Jesus turns him and says what? You said it. I agree with you. You're exactly right. I am him. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. Now what's really interesting here is that the high priest recognized the equation. Do you real think about what Caiaphas asks? Are you the Messiah, the what? The Son of God. It's amazing. Again, this is another one of these old ticker things here, Gerald, right? What did even the Jews recognize? That when Messiah came, he would be who? He'd be deity. Son of God. They recognized it. And Jesus says, it's, it's just what you said. But I'm going to tell you, go further with you, Caiaphas. I'm going to give you the consequences of that. Because from this point forward, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, not the Father, the power, okay? Because the one who had power was the one who was the judge, right? <laughs> Think this one through. Caiaphas and these guys are judging Jesus. They're getting ready to do what? Condemn him to what? What kind of death? Physical death. Physical death. Crucifixion, bad, but physical death. And Jesus says to them, it is as you say. But look, the next thing you're going to know is that you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power, the throne, 
judging you. That's exactly right. And that judgment will be for all of eternity. And then he says, you will then see me coming in the, the clouds. Now, I don't have time to go in. I gave some other verses there about the clouds. But I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7 real quick. Keep your finger there in Matthew. And let's go back to Daniel 7. Because this is actually a statement that they would, again, recognize the allusion to. Daniel 7. There we go. I knew it was in my Bible someplace. All right, Daniel 7. And uh, this whole is a vision um, that um, Nebuchadnezzar had. And, um, and there is a description going on. And um, I'm going to start at verse 9, verse 13 and 14 where we're at. But we told, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels like a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. If you drop down to verse 26 with Daniel's um, interpretation, the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion of the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. So they understood this vision. Again, they know this. When Jesus makes this statement, again, He's laying it out. They asked him, tell us plainly. So what does Jesus tell them? It is exact. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I am the one who's going to what? I'm the one who's going to be the judge. I'm going to reign. And I'm going to return. And when I return in the clouds, then I'm going to set up my, my kingdom. What were they ultimately looking for? Power and dominion, but Kurtz? an earthly kingdom. Yeah, they were so cut it shorter. They're looking for the kingdom to be established. Okay, they're looking for the earthly kingdom to be established, but they're looking for the earthly kingdom to be established in their own timetable. Make sense? Jesus wasn't doing it the way they wanted it to be done. Jesus is giving them the timetable. 
It's going to happen. I am going to set up my kingdom, but I'm going to set it up how? According to God's plan. That's exactly right. And the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to go sit at the, the, the right hand of the Father, and guess what? Before I ever come and see, um, establish that, that, that kingdom, you're going to see me up there. You're not even going to have the privilege of seeing the kingdom that you're wanting to see. Jesus is very clear about who he is and what's going to happen. But the third thing we see, then, is even afterwards, after Jesus states this, they declare blasphemy and they go to kill him, and they begin to plot against him. And the first thing, then, is this contempt that we have, that we see for him. Because they, they, he is blasphemed, right? And he's worthy of death. And then what do they do? They spit on him, and they... They beat him. Is that according to the law? No. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And this goes into what we were talking about earlier, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Again, they know this verse. And here they are what? Fulfilling it. Let us break, so this is the plot, the vain thing against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in peace and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Here you are, and you're doing what? You're condemning <laughs> the very anointed who was coming. You're fulfilling this psalm right here. And so you're told, challenged, exhorted as a result of this psalm to do, to, rather to do what? Embrace him. Kiss him. Love him. Sadly, what did, um, what did Judas do? We saw last week. He kissed him, but he kissed him what? With betrayal, falsely. Yeah. So the idea of kissing the son here is meant to, to, to embrace him, to have affection for him, to put your trust in him. Would they do that? No, they wouldn't do that. Rather, what did they do? They began to connive against him. And so that's what we see in chapter 27, beginning of verse 1 and 2, where we're told one more time, as we've been told numerous times throughout the Bible, and you can see I have the, um, uh, through the book of Matthew, I have those verses there and, um, where we've gone. But we know that that plotting occurred all the way from the time when he was in the, um, the tabernacle in Capernaum. Do you remember when he, he healed the guy with the shriveled arm? It was on the what? Anybody remember? It was on the Sabbath. So what was the reaction of the religious leaders? 
that he worked on wrong day, worked on the Sabbath. But what was their reaction? That was that was their thought process. Anger. They, from that moment, they sought to destroy him. They sought to destroy him. Isn't it amazing? So for three years, they have been plotting and conniving. They've been seeking to use trickery. Remember, we talked about that. And now we just see that they're trying even to use what? False witnesses, and they can't even get that, right? And so here we're told, they come in chapter 27. Oh, I'm still back in Daniel, that's why. In chapter 27, it said, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. They knew that they couldn't do it, so they bring him away, and they deliver him to Pontius Pilate's house. Now, this is really interesting as well. Um, Someone go to John 18, verse 28, and read that for me. Who's got that? Okay, verse 28. Okay, why don't you read that real loud? So, so John shares the exact same thing as Matthew does, right? It was the next morning. They, they, they begin to plot and they take him to Pilate. But John gives us one more detail. What's that detail? So it's Pat, they didn't go in. They brought him to the door, but they didn't want to go into the praetorium. Why didn't they want to go into the praetorium? Because if they went into the praetorium, they would be defiled. If they become defiled, they couldn't what? Eat the Passover. Isn't this kind of interesting? Okay, it's a little timing thing, too. Just put that in your brain. There were, that little detail gives us timing of when all this happens. So when Jesus eats his Passover, he's eating it the night before they would normally eat it. Did you get it? He had his celebration a day ahead of everybody else because he knew he was going to be the Passover lamb itself. Okay? They were going to eat that evening. They didn't want to become defiled so they could eat it, okay? So they came, and so they don't want to go in, okay, because they don't want to become defiled. So they they send them in there, okay? So we come now before the governor. Now, this is kind of interesting. As I didn't make my little comment about the the little subtitle there in the other one, and that was the the two high priests stand face-to-face. You know, you had the physical high priest and the eternal high priest. But now we got the king of kings. How fun is this if you think about it? You got the king of kings, the king of the whole universe, the ruler of the heavens and the earth, standing before who? A mere human governor. I mean, he's not even Caesar. Make sense? He's not Pharaoh. He's just a governor. And this guy is going to determine, quote unquote, Jesus is what? fate. How fun is that? From a what? Purely human perspective. Is Pilate going to determine Jesus' fate? No. Why not? It's already been determined by God. This is the reason he came. It was for this purpose that he was here. Pilate could do nothing but hand him over to be condemned. However, we are going to look at the human side of this because he still made choices, right? This is where the predestination of God and the foreknowledge of God slides together in 
I don't know how they play together. Make sense? God chose to leave that as a what? A mystery. However, I do know that Jesus was going to what? He was going to die. But Pilate's still accountable for his decisions. Caiaphas, the chief priests, the scribes, they're still what? Accountable for their decisions. They are making free will choices. And yet God's plan is still what? Playing out on this stage. So he stands before Pilate, and he begins to be interrogated by Pilate. It's kind of an interesting thing. Turn with me to John 18, verse 33, 33 to 36. Because Pilate says to Jesus, we're told, and Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate says to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause was I born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate then shares this, the, the statement that um, you hear in so many contexts being used falsely, Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? So we answer that question real quick before we move on. What's truth? Jesus. Jesus is truth. Good, that sums it up. Jesus, God, Bible. And actually, all three of those are real good answers, right? But what is truth? You know, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What is truth? I mean, we live in a day of relativism. That may be true for you, but it's not for me. What is truth? God's word. God's word. That's the basis of all truth. And so I believe there's a reason why he had it recorded for us. And why then he enabled Gutenberg to know how to make a press. How that his word then could be put out into all the, the, the languages of men. So that you and I would be without excuse so we would have the what? The truth. All people have to do is read it. Do you realize that that's why Wycliffe and Luther and all those guys, Huss, began to translate the Bible in the 13s, 14s, 15s, 1600s? So that the people could understand the truth because the church, sadly, was withholding the truth. Again, don't believe everything I tell you. I am not going to purposely lie to you, but I could be using reverse psychology right now, right? Okay? How do you know whether what I teach you is truth? Check it for yourself. Pick up the Newsweek. Pick up the Time magazine. Pick up the world, right? No. How do you know whether what I told you is true? It'll be on CNN. (laughs) Read it. Read it where? 
in God's word. Be a Berean believer. They didn't believe anything Paul said. They searched the scriptures how often? Daily. So the high priests, the, the rulers of the synagogue, they searched the scriptures daily to find out what Paul was saying was true. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. The Bereans did as a whole. Make sense? It's kind of an interesting thought process. Don't you wonder whether those were Gentile Bereans too? Okay. Anyways, a little side note. Okay. So this whole concept, what is truth? But he asked Jesus, are you what? A king. And again, Jesus, what? He confirms the charge. I am. However, I'm not what? Not an earthly king. My kingdom's from beyond this world. Now, this is kind of interesting because at the same time, um, back in Matthew, we, we read about the fact that, um, that Pilate's wife comes to him and says, hey, have nothing to do with that man. So let me pick this up in verse 3. Or I'm sorry, not verse 3, verse 9. Uh, change that again, verse 11. We're going to pick it up, verse 11, so begin reading, because where he's standing before Pilate. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then, the, then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing the to the multitude, one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because, uh, over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah, the Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. So, Pilate's interrogating Jesus. Jesus confirms the charge. While he's sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate gets word from his wife, right? And she says what? Don't have anything to do with this what? Just man. I have suffered greatly in what? In dreams. Isn't this interesting? God was working even in the wife of Pilate. I mean, I don't know how, what you all want to make of this, okay? But God was really ramping this thing up. Pilate, when Pilate makes this decision, it's a massive decision that he's making. So, while that's going on, Jesus is what, again? Absolutely quiet. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was silent like a what? A lamb before its shears. He's fulfilling scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13-25 um, let's go there. Um, 
we can't spend a lot of time on it, but I want to go there because this is the part where he set us the example, and I don't want to miss this. This is um, a tremendous part of this whole thing. First Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is, is it, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but, having, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When Jesus stood both before Caiaphas and the chief priests, and then before Pilate, and the accusations were flowing, Jesus held his peace. He held his tongue. I pray for myself on that. To hold my tongue. How easy is it when you feel like you are being unjustly accused to immediately do what? Explain. To complain, to explain, to berate. To, to begin to, to accuse and to begin to become sinful in the use of your own tongue. Jesus held his tongue. This is an amazing thing to me. Someone turned Proverbs 10, verse 19. Somebody else, Steve. Who's got Proverbs 10, 19? Okay, Caleb, I saw your hand go up. Take Proverbs 13, verse 3. Someone take Proverbs 21, verse 23. All right, Richard? So when you're there, David, go ahead. Proverbs 10.19. Proverbs 10.19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. When there are many words, what? Transgression is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. If you speak a lot. So I said, I mean, I got a size 20 mouth, man. I can put both size 10s in there at one time, you know? Okay. When you speak a lot, somewhere along the line, you're going to what? You're going to sin. So it's better to do what? Keep your mouth shut. Okay? Proverbs 13.3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. <laughs> he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but if you open up your mouth, destruction is, is sitting there waiting for you, right? Proverbs 21.23. Whoso So whoever keeps his what? His mouth and his tongue 
keeps us what? Soul from trouble, right? And so the reality is that, you know, the old thing about, you know, it's better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you're foolish rather than to open up and what? Prove them. Prove it. Yeah, so um, the, the reality is, I mean, look, Jesus, I'm not saying he was foolish and he was a sinner, but he again set us to what? The example. He didn't let them provoke him. Bullies do that, don't they? I mean, isn't that our classic term today, bullying, right? But isn't that what bullies do? They try to what? Provoke you, try to get you to do something, right? So you stand there calmly. Then they wound up hitting him. They punched him. They spit on him. What did Jesus do? He hit him back. He didn't, did he? He stood there and he took it. Why? Why did he do it? Example, turn the other cheek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why did he do it? Why could he stand there and, and turn the other cheek? Why could he do that? Because he was right. Go deeper than that. Come on. He is the truth. Say again. Whoa, that's good. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that is set before him. Good, okay. In the end, where I'm going on with this is, he knows he won. Do you get it? He knows he's the ultimate winner here. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV, right? I mean, if, like he said in the garden, if I wanted the legion of angels to come down, all I have to do is what? Ask, and they'll be here. But this is all what? This is all part of so Scripture can be fulfilled. There's a purpose for all this going on. And God is, is larger than this moment. There are times when I have to re- realize that life is bigger than this moment. It isn't all about what's going on right now. Maybe God wants me to be a what? A sacrifice, an example for the people, a lamb to the slaughter. Yeah, Romans chapter 12, okay? Or, I'm sorry, Romans 8. Romans 8. That he may want me to be that lamb, that sheep before the slaughter. That I might be the example to those who are about me. That on the day of visitation, they might glorify God. We'll look at this next week real briefly, but Jesus, when he was on the cross, he he cried out to his father. He said, Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He had the bigger picture. And because he had the bigger picture, he could be in control of his tongue and of his actions. When we lose control... It's because we're really not trusting. Do you get it? This is massive. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He he knows, he knows that, that they've only handed him over because of their enviousness. And so he thinks he can try to connive away to be able to save face and still get Jesus off. Do you ever try to do that? Try to get around just standing up for truth? 
trying to connive a way that maybe you can kind of do something and, and maybe just kind of flow this way? This is Pilate right now. So there was tradition that he would release somebody, like kind of like the Passover lamb or like the, the, the scapegoat, if you would, okay? And so that he would release one for the people uh, over this time. And so he thinks, hey, you know, I'll pick this option and I'll let the people choose. And let's see, who can I do? I know, I'll take Barabbas. I mean, nobody wants Barabbas released. I mean, this guy is the worst criminal. I mean, so bring it in today. Bring a mass murderer, you know, who's a rapist and everything else, okay? And so he, he puts out, you know, um, I'll just say Joe Schmo, okay, just so I'm not using the guy's name. But anyways, that, that's that, that real guy. Or do you want Jesus or Joe Schmo, you know? And he's thinking everybody's going to say what? Release Jesus, release Jesus, release Jesus, right? But behind the scenes, part of that plotting, part of the conniving, the priests have done what? They've gone around and they've encouraged the crowd to ask for Barabbas. They want Barabbas to be released. So who should I release to you? Barabbas, Barabbas. Now, years ago, many, many years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll, I think it was Chuck Swindoll, teach this. And I thought this was really good. This is a real quick little thing. Think about this from Barabbas' side. <laughs> Bless you. He's in, the, he's in the prison right there near the Praetorium. Got a little window. And here's the crowd. The crowd's crying out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. That's all you heard, right? Because what Pilate said was, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd starts crying out, Barabbas. And then he says, what should I do with Jesus, the one you call the king? And they yell out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So you're Barabbas, you're in your cell, what do you hear? Barabbas, 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 crucify him, crucify him. And you think what? Your moment's up. Can you imagine what he thought when the, when the, the gates start rattling on his cell? And then he's released. And he sees somebody else taking his place on the cross. I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Have you ever heard that crowd cry out, crucify him, crucify him? It should. You deserve it. I deserve it. The wages of my sin, Bob's sin, you can add your own name in there. The wages of it is what? It's death. It's what I deserved. And yet there's Jesus standing in my place. And I, in in a small little way, I think Pilate gets this. I, 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 I don't, and he's trying to figure out some way to let this guy go. But he's got a decision to make, doesn't he? Is he going to heed what he knows to be right? Or is he going to heed the crowd? Sadly, we read about the capitulation of Pilate. He caves in. He gives in to the crowd. He proclaims Jesus to be the righteous one. He declared that Jesus was innocent, not worthy of of this at all. But then he condemns the righteous one. He hands him over. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, just he takes the bowl of water like he can 
wash his hands, but it'll be like Lady Macbeth. The blood will continue to stain his hands the rest of his life. Like he can wash his hands of the death of this righteous one. What was his job? Justice. But how did he perform his justice? In the fear of man. Through the fear of man. Do we see that today in our, our, our court systems? Sadly, isn't it? We're not, we're not concerned about justice. We're concerned about political correctness. And it's easy to pick on our court system. But let me ask you, because I bring it to myself. Are there times when I make decisions more worrying about what you guys think or what my neighbors might think or what my wife might think or what my kids might think rather than what God might think? Galatians 1.10, Paul is very clear about that if I do anything to seek to please men, then I'm not seeking to please God. Our ultimate goal ought to seek to be seek to please God. Pilate missed it. Because he was only living for the pleasure of men. So in the end, how do you respond when men revile you? Is there work to be done? Or is there even sin to be confessed? Have you been reviled? I mean, I can tell you. I mean, I know times when, again, I've shared some of those. I don't, I'm not going to go into them now. Then I've blown it. I mean, I have blown it. I have ran somebody up one side and down the other. And it was sin, and the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I had to go back, and I had to confess. Okay? In my house, even with my kids, then I have, I have disciplined in harshness and in anger rather than in love. And I've had to go back, and I've had to ask them to forgive me. Are you willing to ask God to assist you in your strength to stand and your ability to hold your tongue? That needs to be a prayerly, a daily prayer. Remember Jesus, knowing he was ready to go through this trial, asked the disciples to pray with him. We ought to be praying faithfully for one another. Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen to him, all these trials, all these tribulations. He asked his disciples in the garden, remember this? Pray with me. Pray with me. And he came back and found them what? And he said, couldn't you pray with me for one hour? Remember, he told him, he says, I, I'm, I'm like stressed out, even to what? To death. And yet they fell asleep. Are you faithfully praying for one another? Trials and tribulations are going to come. Jesus said, be of good cheer, because I, you know, in this world you're going to have what? Tribulation, Tribulation but be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. Are we praying for one another to be able to endure, to be able to stand in the midst of this? Is there then a need to change the way you think and ultimately change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for, for standing for us. Lord, for taking my sin, our sin, upon yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help me and help us as a body to be able to stand strong and to stand firm. Lord, help us to be able to hold our tongues. 
to be able to use our speech for edification and not for tearing down, for glorifying you and not for glorifying ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us as an assembly to be more and more conformed to your image and likeness, that you would receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.